The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. Lord, we thank you for the privilege we have to gather together as a body of believers today, the freedom we have in this country that we still have to gather together and worship you freely. Lord, we thank you for the fellowship we have around your word, that it is absolute truth. and We can rely upon it. There is no shadow or shifting meaning within your word because it reflects your essential character of veracity and immutability. And therefore, we can count on your word exclusively and rely upon it with everything in our lives. Now, Father, as we study your word, we pray that we can understand the things that we are uh, teaching, learning this morning, see how they apply to our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I seem a little punchy this morning. I got to sleep, I think, at 2 a.m. this morning. I spent the last couple of days in Houston, went down there to do some things with my folks, and it was Mother's Day, so I thought, well, that would be a good time to go down and visit with them a little bit, but the plane was running late coming back, and fortunately, the only non-stop out of Houston up here leaves Houston at almost 7 o'clock in the evening on Saturday night. So you get in late to begin with, and then if it's running late, you're really late, and I have a tendency to get up very early on Sunday morning, so between the very late night and very early morning, I'm not sure if I can even read my notes this morning, so we'll test your grace orientation. Open your Bibles with me to Galatians chapter 5, verse 13. Galatians chapter 5, verse 13. Freedom, liberty. Words that have inspired some of the loftiest writings in human history, offered some of the greatest challenges, and stimulated men to profound dreams. These are words that are the foundation of our nation. Unfortunately, these words today are rarely understood. They are frequently spoken, but their meanings have been unfortunately destroyed and warped by the inclusion of another concept that has stronger ties with the anarchy of the French Revolution than the American War for Independence, and that is the concept of equality. You see, there is no such thing in this life as equality. We must always remember that, when Thomas, that Thomas Jefferson is the one who penned the Declaration of Independence, and he had drunk deeply of the waters of the Enlightenment in the 18th century and had an autonomous view of man rather than a view of man as a creature of God. He was a deist, and he rejected biblical Christianity. In fact, many people don't know this, but he published his own version of the Bible in the early 1800s. He took out his razor blade, and he cut all the passages out of the Bible that had anything to do with miracles or healing or anything that smacked of supernaturalism. And that was his view of the Bible. 
So his view of reality, because it is divorced from the principles given in Scripture and the definition of reality as provided in the Word of God, is necessarily skewed. And so that means that his view of God, his view of man, his view of society is to that degree also distorted. And when he spoke about equality, he spoke about equality, he should have defined it better. He spoke about equality really under the law. But in life, people are different. We're all born different. Just look around. People look different. There are different sizes, different strengths. They have different abilities, different talents, different IQs. They come from different backgrounds, have different influences in their lives. No two people are equal. What we have and we're supposed to have in a Republican form of government is equal opportunity under the law and an equal opportunity where you have true freedom that gives you the freedom to succeed or the freedom to fail. And when you have the government stepping in to provide any level of a safety net in order to prevent you from failing too seriously, that is also going to limit your ability to succeed. And so the more you have a government that steps in in order to provide security, because security is antithetical to freedom. It was security that the children of Israel longed for in their return to the slavery in Egypt. Security and slavery are concepts that are very closely related. This is what I saw a few years ago when I went over to Russia and had the opportunity to uh, minister some in the Republic of Belarus, which is part of the former Soviet Union. And the people there under the new freedoms, the new capitalism in, in the new Russia, uh, had no concept of true personal responsibility for their success or failure. And in the economic upheaval that's been taking place in that area for the last seven or eight years since the collapse of uh, communism, the people there would rather go back to the old forms of communism, give up all their freedom, because if they went back to communism, they would have economic security, they would have economic stability, and they would not be in a position where they were experiencing uh, 500 or 1,000 percent inflation monthly, which is what they had at the time that I was over there. So they would rather give up their freedom in order to have security. That is why it is so important that we have limited government and that we put freedom where it properly belongs on the individual, and we must, therefore, allow individuals to exercise their freedom and to be able to fail and absolutely destroy their lives if necessary. Now, that sounds harsh, but that's exactly the situation we saw in the Garden of Eden when God had Adam and Eve in the garden with true freedom. And we must always let God define terms and not let autonomous man come in and define terms. And unfortunately, most people today are so inculcated with socialistic concepts and human viewpoint concepts through their education that it takes years to shake a lot of this distorted thinking and distorted his, uh, historical teaching out of their minds. So we have to understand... When we come to this passage in Galatians 5 that is discussing freedom, we have to let the Scripture dictate the meaning of freedom and what freedom essentially means. And last night as I was coming back from Houston on the airplane, I had several thoughts reflecting on this passage and the whole concept of freedom. It grew out of some discussions I had with folks when I was down in Houston, but before we get to that, let's read the passage. We're in Galatians 5, verse 13. We'll just read these three verses. For you are called to freedom, brethren, only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, flesh is a term for the sin nature, but through love serve one another. 
For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, in the statement, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, take care lest you be consumed by one another. Now, Paul connects two crucial concepts in this passage in a unique way. And the interesting thing is that neither of these concepts are understood by modern Americans. Very, very few Americans understand either one of these concepts, and they are freedom and love. Most Americans have a concept of love that is nothing more than simpering sentimentalism and has a lot to do with romantic concepts and emotional and physical attraction and has little to do with the biblical concept of love. And so as soon as you start talking about loving people and what is involved in loving people, you get all kinds of ideas that have nothing to do with the biblical concept. And then you take these autonomous, sentimental ideas about love and you read those back into the Scripture and you really get a distorted interpretation of the Scripture. And we've heard a lot of really asinine comments by pundits and political leaders over the last few weeks in relationship to things that are going on over in Kosovo and the war there and things that have transpired in Colorado. So I just jotted down a few thoughts that we need to uh, reflect upon this morning when we talk about the concept of love and its relationship to freedom. First of all, true love, we must go back to a very fundamental definition of what love is. Love is a mental attitude. Love is not an emotion. Now, there is an emotional love, but that's not what the Scriptures are talking about, and you better not base any decisions in your life upon emotion. Because once you do that, emotion is transient. It goes up and down. It, it responds to whatever the events are in your life. And as soon as those circumstances change, your emotions change. So it is very uh, shallow. It's very superficial. It's very dangerous to base any decisions on an emotional concept of love. True love, the biblical concept of love, especially that which is reflected by the Greek word agape, which is the word that we find here, is a mental attitude love. That means it is essentially volitional. It is not emotional. And it focuses on what is best for its object. Now, that is a crucial concept. Love focuses on what is best for its object. Now, that means you have to clearly define what the object of love is. Point number two, liberalism. Whether we're talking about, and we're going to define this a little more as we go through this, whether we're talking about religious liberalism or political liberalism, and at their core they buy into certain basic assumptions about the nature of reality that are antithetical and antagonistic to biblical Christianity. At their basic core, they put the focus on the wrong object. They put the focus on the national enemy, not their neighbor, not the fellow American, not their children, not their grandchildren. All of a sudden, America gets into a war, as we saw with Vietnam, and the political liberal begins to wail and moan about the victims of the enemy and how terrible it is to kill the enemy and how you should go easy on them and all of these nonsensical things, forgetting the fact that we are protecting the freedoms of their neighbor, their children, their grandchildren, and future generations. So you see they shift the object of their pseudo-love to the wrong object. 
Same thing happens in criminality. Rather than putting their focus on love for the victim of crime, they put their focus from their pseudo-love on the criminal himself. Oh, we don't want to incarcerate them. We don't want to make that punishment too deep. We don't want to take away television and their comfort, so we're going to give them television, we're going to give them this, and we're going to give them that, and we're going to basically spend about thirty to $40,000 a year to take care of these people instead of uh, putting them to work, doing something that somehow could benefit society and uh, making it a real punishment while they're incarcerated. And then if it's a capital crime, and I personally think that if we were to go back and use the, we ought to use the Old Testament law, the Mosaic law as a model for jurisprudence and for penal, penal, um, our penal theory. The problem is that modern penal codes, modern um, penology, is based upon liberal assumptions that man is inherently good. Now, that's the problem that you see in all of this ranting and raving and hand-wringing and weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth over the events in Denver and, the, and, 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 and all the stuff that's going on in Kosovo, is that people basically think that man is perfectible and man is basically good, and they've rejected the scriptural notion of the total depravity of man, that we're all born sinners, and we're all born inherently evil, and the scripture says that, that the heart is deceptive and wicked above all things. Who can know it? God's view of man and his description of the basic nature of man is not at all complementary, and modern man in his arrogance has totally rejected that, and he thinks man is perfectible, and that affects your whole view of criminal justice, that affects your view of war, that affects everything in life, your view of law, your view of government, your view of society. That's why at the very core, the issue is what is the nature of man, what is the nature of God. You have to identify those things, and they interpret all of this thing. Man is basically good, so when you have a couple of kids who commit criminal acts, you can't explain it because man is basically good, so you have to look for the scapegoat. You have to figure out who's responsible. It's not them. It's not because they're a sinner, and this is the trend of their sin nature, and they've made bad decisions from a position of weakness, and they've continued to do this over time, giving rein to their sin nature and giving in to their sin nature and their desire for revenge and their hate, hate and all of these other mental attitude sins. Instead, you have to put the blame somewhere, and ultimately they're going to come along and take weapons away from law-abiding citizens and put the blame on the handgun, but what about all the bombs and other things that they use? You see, loving, and then the objection, of course, to this is people say, well, doesn't the Bible say that we're to, you're to love your enemy? Well, yes, it does, but let's understand the concept there. And the, the context is personal, it's not national, number one. It's not a passage that you can take and apply to the concept of war. Because in war, those of you who have been in the military, you know that if you are going to be a good soldier, a good warrior, a good sailor, then you need to have objectivity towards the enemy and not be consumed with any kind of emotional sins of hatredness or vindictiveness because as soon as you let those sinful emotions dominate your soul and let emotion dominate your soul, then you're going to give in to subjectivity, you're going to have... Emotions will control your soul, and you're going to become a lousy soldier and a lousy warrior, and you're probably going to end up dead very quickly. That any good soldier is going to have an object level of object, objectivity towards the enemy, and he is not going to have feelings, give in to feelings of hatred. Now, that will happen, especially if you're in combat situations and your friends are killed and things like that happen. But the idea is to remain objective. 
Now, the focus is not necessarily loving your enemy, but in a situation where a national entity is involved in a just war. I don't want to get off into a sidetrack of defining what just war and unjust war is, but you're defined in a just war. The biblical principle is freedom through military victory, and this is carried out throughout the Old Testament and into the New Testament. And you always will hear somebody say, and it's usually somebody who doesn't have a thimble full of knowledge about the Bible, well, isn't that Old Testament? How many times have you heard that? Isn't that Old Testament? That's not New Testament. We're going to get into that. I've decided that after we finish our study in Galatians, we need to get into some Old Testament studies, and we're going to see that the Old Testament is very important for New Testament, for the Christian life. There are a lot of things embedded in the Old Testament that are there for our purpose today. That's what the New Testament itself says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. It's how you utilize it and how you interpret it, and it's there for our application. Remember when Paul said to Timothy, all Scripture is God-breathed. When, t- t- when Paul wrote that, only about eight books, eight to ten books of the New Testament had been penned. He was primarily talking, if you read the context of 2 Timothy 3, he was talking about the Old Testament. And we quote that verse all the time as if it's, you hear fundies quoted all the time, as if it's referring to the New Testament, and then they ignore the Old Testament. But the God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament, and if something is legitimate in the Old Testament, it's just as legitimate in the New Testament. If it doesn't violate the character, the righteousness, the holiness of God in the Old Testament, it certainly does in the New Testament because God doesn't change. So we have to realize that in warfare, the focus of love is on your national entity and on preserving its freedoms and preserving them for the next generation. So the issue of loving your enemy is not the issue in combat. The issue is loving your nation. True love, we see in the scriptures, is that true love, according to the Bible, does not exclude violence, physical punishment, capital punishment, or warfare. Let me say that again because to the modern liberal who is operating on human viewpoint assumptions about the nature of man, the nature of God, and therefore it screws up his view of Christianity, has just the opposite concept. True love for a person does not exclude violence, physical punishment, corporal punishment, capital punishment, or warfare. Capital punishment and its speedy use is true love for the national entity and the citizenry of the national entity to protect them from criminality. Not only is is capital punishment authorized in the scriptures from the Old Testament on the basis of the Noahic Covenant through the New Testament in Romans chapter 12, but it is mandated for the success of any nation, for the preservations of its freedoms. This is a primary function of human government. In the same way, warfare is designed to protect the freedoms of the nation and to keep them from being overrun by a tyrannical foreign power. little side note here is remember that God punished the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember our principle is that the Scripture authorizes punishment, violence, corporal punishment, and capital punishment, and God violently punished the Lord Jesus Christ as a substitute for our sins. Second thing, observation we should remember is that that was done through capital punishment. If there were no capital punishment, there would be no salvation for our sins. Our very salvation is based upon the application of capital punishment to the Lord Jesus Christ when Under the laws of the Roman Empire, he was crucified 
there on Golgotha, and it was then that he died as a substitute for our sins. Now that carries us through, I think, about three points, or two points. Third point is that true love in a national context promotes justice for the criminal, protects the victim, defends the freedom of the citizenry, and promotes personal responsibility. Let me say that again. True love in a national context promotes justice for the criminal, protects the victim of crime, defends the freedom of the citizenry from incursions by government or foreign powers, and it is always the tendency of government because Someone observed, absolute power corrupts absolutely. It is always the tendency of government to seek to become autonomous and to pull all of the power to itself and to overrun the citizenry. So true love defends freedom and promotes personal responsibility. Point number four, the greatest freedoms that we have, that we have in this nation arguably is the right to bear arms and to own firearms and to possess firearms without government regulation or intrusion. The fact is that these criminals in Colorado broke over 39 different laws. Now, just think about this. How many more laws do we need to pass to keep that from happening. They were already criminals. The issue is not passing more laws and throwing legislation at these problems. The issue is that we have to apply the laws. We have to prosecute the criminals. We don't just sit back and pat them on the back of the hand until some tragedy like this occurs. There has to be consistent application and prosecution of the laws that are already on the books. Now, The right to bear arms is a fundamental principle of freedom. Fundamental principle of freedom. The Scripture recognizes this from a very early stage in the Old Testament. But the liberal and the person operating on a human viewpoint mindset rejects that kind of thinking out of hand. They're always operating on some kind of solution that the government, and we're going to see this. It's interesting, the connection between the first hour and second hour today. Now, people are always looking for a political solution to problems when the, pro- when the problem isn't political. So the solution, no matter how much legislation you have, no matter what governmental system you impose, that's not ultimately going to solve the problem because the problem isn't political, the problem is spiritual. And it always goes down to basically analyzing the basic understanding of man. Is man inherently good or is man inherently evil? And the Scripture says that man is inherently evil He is prone to sin, and left unrestrained, he will uh, go in the direction of evil. And that, of course, includes a view of God. And ultimately, your view of man, your view of God, will imply a view of absolutes, a view of morals or ethics, whether it is relative or absolute. And where you are operating from a position of absolutes, Your view of law, your view of society, your view of problems is always going to be different from people who are operating on a sliding scale of moral and ethical relativism because then they are constantly being 
shifted around by the winds of circumstances. Now that leads to the next point, point five. Historically, arms control is designed to limit freedom and to promote the tyranny of government. Historically, arms control is designed to limit freedom and to promote the tyranny of government. This goes all the way back to what happened, an event that occurred in the Old Testament, 1 Samuel 13, 19. Now, just to give you a little orientation geographically, in the Old Testament, in the early part of Samuel, the Israelites had only taken portions of the land that God had promised to them from the Canaanites. And they were basically up here in, in the hill country between uh, what well, late in the New Testament was Galilee and, and Judea, and then areas in Judah. But along the coast, you had the five cities of the Philistines. It wasn't a national entity as such. They were city-states. The Philistines were Greek sea peoples who had migrated down to this area a couple of centuries earlier. And the Philistines were very powerful. The Philistines culturally had advanced into the Iron Age, and they had weapons of iron. But the Israelites were, were, uh, had be, been retarded through the period of the judges because of military conquest, and their weapons were of bronze. They were still in what uh, archaeologists call late Bronze Age. So they're operating on, on bronze, and they are being overwhelmed and defeated and dominated by the Philistines on the coast who are coming along and ravaging them and taking their harvests and continually. That's the background for, for the Samson episodes and also the beginning chapters of Samuel. In 1 Samuel chapter 13, 19, we read this interesting comment. Now, no blacksmith. What does a blacksmith do? Blacksmith makes weapons. Blacksmith can make an iron sword. A blacksmith can uh, forge the uh, uh, iron necessary to make spears and all sorts of weaponry and armor. Now, no blacksmith could be found in all the land of Israel. For the Philistines said, lest the Hebrews make swords or spears. In other words, the Philistines exercised a rather primitive form of arms control. And they went, when they conquered the Israelites, they went through and they found every blacksmith, everybody who could make a weapon, and they killed them. They confiscated all the, uh, any weapons they could find that were made of iron so that they could dominate because they had a more advanced technology. They had more advanced weaponry than the Israelites did. And so in order to control the Jews, they took the weapons away from them. This is the same principle that Adolf Hitler followed when he took over as Chancellor of Germany in 1933. One of the first things he did was he had the people turn in under the guise of promoting a more peaceful, less belligerent. can't imagine a German buying the concept of being less belligerent. A less belligerent society, and to protect everybody, everybody turn in your firearms. So everybody came down with their rifles and their pistols, and they promoted all these safety programs and they had everybody turn in their, their, their weapons, much like these buyback programs you get the liberals promoting today. And just all under the, the ultimate agenda. Always remember this. There is a crusader arrogance, not only on the liberal side, it's also present on the conservative side. Because both liberals and conservatives fall into the trap of thinking that the ultimate solution is a political solution and a legislative solution, and it's not. The pro- basic problem isn't. Political, the basic problem is spiritual. And until people 
get to the cross and are regenerated, number one, and then get with Bible doctrine and start advancing to spiritual maturity, number two, there will be no hope for this nation. We are teetering on the very brink of internal collapse and external defeat. What this administration in particular has done in denuding the American military of its weaponry and of the breadth and depth of its arsenal is criminal. It is a traitorous act, in my opinion. Some of the stuff that has come across my desk from some friends of mine in the military in the last few weeks just wants to, just makes you want to weep at how this country has been destroyed, how the military has been destroyed by various things and, and executive actions that have been taken over the last couple of years, and they're never reported by the press. They're never reported on the news. The news media ignores it, and it continues to happen on a weekly basis. And if anything were to come along in the next few weeks in, in uh, Asia or down in the Middle East, we would be completely strapped, and we would be in serious, serious trouble. I don't think we could handle the threat. And in the meantime, the Soviets have been using, or the Russians have been using, a lot of the money that we have been sending to them as economic aid in order to just upgrade their nuclear arsenal, which was growing out of date, and they are going to be poised in a position within the next uh, few years of just absolutely overwhelming us, and yet our whole policy towards uh, developing missiles and missile technology has uh, been reversed, and we do not have the capacity now that we had 10 years ago to withstand a, a missile attack from a foreign power. Not only do we have to look at the Russians, but the Chinese now have technology which they received from uh, through this spy network. And there are other uh, terrorists and terrorist groups around that have acquired certain kinds of missile technology. And yet the American people are being kept ignorant of all of this. And it is just a tragedy. The only hope, the only hope is the Word of God and the Gospel. The solution is not political. The agenda is not going to be accomplished through crusader activism. It's going to be accomplished, number one, by believers who are willing to get out there and give the gospel to people and people who will respond, number one. Number two, by believers who understand the dynamics of the doctrine of the remnant, which teaches that the way that a believer operates as salt and light in his culture is by advancing to spiritual maturity, not by going out and marching in various crusades, not by rallying the troops politically and getting out. Not that believers should not be involved politically. They should. They should be knowledgeable so that they can vote well. There are going to be some believers who have the ability to remain objective and not get distracted by political issues who should run for office and be involved there. But the ultimate solution is not a political solution. It is a spiritual solution. Now, that was exactly the problem that Israel faced, and they forgot that the whole the, the warning that God gave them under the Mosaic Law was very simple. The, Mosaic, the whole concept of life under the Mosaic Law was designed to be very obvious to the most uh, simple-minded observer. God said, if you're uh, being prosperous, if your gross national product is increasing, then I'm blessing you. And you're obedient. But if you're disobedient, I will reduce the gross national product. You'll have economic disaster. You're going to go through five stages of discipline. And the final stage of discipline is going, I'm going to defeat you militarily and you will be removed from the, from the 
land that I have given you. And when you're under military occupation by a foreign power, that is a sign that you have blown it spiritually. And yet the Jews rarely, if ever, woke up to the fact that when the enemy was inside the gate, they never stopped and thought objectively and said, now didn't God say something about this? And aren't we out of line here? Maybe what we need to do is get our act together with God, and then once we do that, God will solve the problem. As soon as they were defeated militarily, they started trying to find the uh, human solution, the temporal solution, and the political solution, or military solution and just made matters worse until finally, that's the whole lesson of the judges, until finally they turned back to the Lord and realized and admitted their sinfulness. But in that whole context, especially in the chapters of, during the period of the judges, we see that arms control was utilized as a means of controlling people and taking freedom away from people. Hitler did it. That was the first thing he did. It was the first thing that Castro did when he took over Cuba was he made sure that all of the weapons were confiscated from the citizenry so that nobody could protect themselves. Once you have lost the right to protect your property, property is fundamental, the right of ownership of property is fundamental to all freedom. In fact, um, when the, I think the Constitution says that it was written for the, for the pursuit of life, liberty, and happiness, the original phrase which should have been kept there was property. Happiness is too abstract and obtuse term for most people to understand, but it was property because personal ownership of property is recognized by the Mosaic Law. That's why it says don't steal. It, it, that recognizes the right of it, personal ownership of property and protects personal ownership of property. And once you lose the right to protect your property, then you have lost your basic ability to preserve and protect your personal freedoms. That's why the Second Amendment the right to bear arms it applies to individual ownership of, of firearms, whether they're pistols, whatever kind they are. The government, once you start letting the government define what kind of firearm you ought to be able to have or not have, you have let the camel's nose, the proverbial camel's nose, get under the tent. And then the issue is just a matter of degree of control, and you've already started losing the battle. Now, point number six is the concept of true freedom that we have laid out in the Scripture is that true freedom must be understood in terms of its original roots and the root issues as defined in Scripture. And that goes back to the concept of spiritual freedom. Where The opposite of freedom is bondage. And where is man first enslaved? The interesting thing is that when you look at the first dispensation, that first period of God's administration of human history, it begins with the creation, restoration of the earth in Genesis 1, goes down to Genesis 2, or Genesis 3, 8, with the fall of man. This was originally called the Age of Innocence by Schofield. That's in the Schofield Notes, and that's become pretty much an accepted term. I don't care for it because it implies some things that aren't there. But he was emphasizing the fact that man was created perfect and was uh, morally pure. He was righteous because he was created in the image and likeness of God. There's some other terms that have been suggested for that. Another one that is very popular is that this is the dispensation of freedom because during that dispensation, man was free from the bondage to the sin nature. And that brings out 
an essential idea. Now, I prefer to call it the dispensation of the uh, of human of uh, <coughs> excuse me untested human perfection. That's a long term, but it brings in the basic idea. But we just want to look at this this title for that dispensation as the dispensation of freedom, because that brings out this essential concept that man was created in perfect environment and he had true and perfect freedom in the Garden of Eden. And he lost freedom when he made a bad decision. That brings volition to the forefront. That is always the issue. As a result of man's negative volition, when Adam disobeyed God, God gave man one test. He said there's one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That's the focus. That's the test. Whether or not you're going to obey me, submit to my leadership in true and genuine humility... And that tells us, first of all, that if you want to have true freedom in life, that it begins by having true and genuine humility. You cannot have freedom. A society, a culture, a civilization cannot function on the basis of freedom if they do not have an understanding of true humility among the citizenry. And that is related to grace orientation. So once again, we are seeing that the underlying issues in developing a true understanding of freedom or spiritual, they are not political or physical. Well, when Adam went on negative signals to God and followed the leadership of his wife and decided to eat the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, at that point, they had consequences. One consequence was spiritual death and everything else flowed from that. And they, were, they acquired a sin nature and they were now in bondage to the sin nature. They were slaves of sin. That means that they had no choice but to commit sin. Everything they did flowed from the sin nature, whether it was personal sin in the the sense of uh, mental attitude sins, sins of the tongue or overt sins, or whether it was human good. Human good, human morality, as we have seen, is condemned by the Scriptures. It was human good was not judged on the cross. Personal sin was judged on the cross. Human good was rejected as a solution to man's problems. And God says, all your righteousnesses are as filthy rags. He doesn't say all your unrighteousnesses are as filthy rags. He says, all your righteousness is a plural word. All your righteousnesses are as filthy rags. That means all those good, wonderful things that people do under the guise of religion, thinking that somehow they are impressing God with their inherent goodness. They're impressing God with how wonderful they are and how much they've dedicated their life to the Lord and how much they go to church and how much they engage in ritual. God is not impressed at all. In fact, he says it's all garbage. The only thing that impresses him is perfect righteousness. And that can only come to a human being through the imputation of the righteousness of Jesus Christ at the moment of faith alone in Christ alone. That's why salvation is based on the non-meritorious concept of faith. Faith is a system of non-meritorious thinking that has as its object the work of Christ on the cross. All the merit is in the person and work of Jesus Christ. It is not on the individual and who he is and what he does. The merit is in the object, the Lord Jesus Christ, who he is and what he did on the cross. And the Scripture says that at the moment you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, God the Father imputes to you the perfect perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. And because you possess that perfect righteousness, and on the basis of that perfect righteousness, God declares you just. That's what salvation is all about. It has nothing to do with us and everything to do with the Lord. 
So, at the moment of Adam's sin, the human race was in bondage. All, all problems of the loss of freedom, tyranny, bondage, whether it's spiritual, whether it's physical, whether it's political, but all temporal bondage has its roots in the fall of Adam. Before that, there was perfect freedom. After that, there is a loss of freedom. And the more you get away from the spiritual solution, the more human society caves in to various forms of tyranny. Now, the next point, I forget what point we're on now because I've shifted my notes. I tried to retype them this morning but didn't have enough time. I think we're on about point eight. In the Garden of Eden, sin destroyed freedom. Now, how did it do that? It started by destroying life. Adam had perfect freedom in the garden. He had unlimited freedom. He was going to live forever. He had access to the tree of life, and he was never going to die. Now, obviously, the first consequence of loss of freedom is to lose the ability to live forever. And he lost that. He lived 900-something, 980 some odd years, and that limited his freedom. He could not live any longer. Secondly, it created a cursed environment. Before the fall, he was in a perfect environment, and when he worked in the garden, he didn't have to deal with weeds. He wasn't fighting the environment. He wasn't in a position of antagonism to, to the environment. And so there was freedom to develop without that constant struggle. But after the fall, there is a constant struggle between man and the environment. Third, the problem is primarily a spiritual problem. Therefore, the solution must begin with a spiritual solution. If there is no spiritual solution, the political solution will never work. If there is no capacity for freedom and an understanding of true responsibility, then any attempt to provide freedom will fall apart eventually. That is why there is such a, something so unique about the history of this nation. Because of the impact of the Great Awakening, because of the uh, residue of uh, the, uh, theistic thinking and biblical thinking from the Puritans in the 17th century, because of all of that, this nation was founded, even though it's not a Christian nation, only individuals can be Christian, it was founded to a large degree on principles that came from a Christian way of thinking, from a biblical way of thinking. Therefore, it was very closely aligned to reality. Now, what happens is, the further you get away from thinking biblically, the further you get away from thinking accurately. And biblical thinking and, and being a believer and growing to spiritual maturity provides capacity. You understand concepts like personal responsibility. You understand that freedom is based on responsibility. And once you lose the impact of personal responsibility, then you begin to destroy the ability to, to live in true freedom. So spiritual, a spiritual life and spiritual growth provides the capacity for freedom. And once you lose that, then you will begin to see the freedoms erode within that culture and within that society. Point number, this is about the fourth sub-point under what happened at the Garden of Eden. When the sin nature is allowed to reign uncontrolled, then slavery increases. As the sin nature is allowed to operate 
more and more in an unrestrained manner, then bondage and tyranny increases. It starts from the sin nature, but then when you have the aggregate of unrestrained sin natures, especially among government officials and politicians and their legislative agenda, then that destroys the freedoms of the individual citizenry. That's why values, absolutes, are integral to developing freedom within a nation. If you do not have an understanding of absolutes, you're operating on moral relativism, you have already undercut the foundation of freedom in that society. Fifth observation, bondage of sin to sin destroys the capacity for life, the capacity for happiness, and the capacity to appreciate freedom. Bondage to the sin nature destroys the capacity for life, it destroys the capacity for happiness, and it destroys the capacity to appreciate freedom. So the more the sin nature goes unrestrained in society, then the more the capacity for life, happiness is destroyed, and people lose the whole concept of personal responsibility and accountability. They are out for themselves and not for anyone else. And that, see, that's the basic issue where we see that connection with love. True biblical love puts others at the focal point and not self. It is the opposite of arrogance. And all of this goes right back to the angelic conflict. In the angelic conflict, Satan operated on arrogance, and he was going to establish his own kingdom apart from God, and he wanted to be like God. And in contrast, we see that the values that, well, the values that he promotes is the it is self-authority. And that is the opposite of freedom and destroys freedom. And in con- contrast, what God is providing in the church age and throughout history is pu- calling out a people to himself that are going to operate on the principles of his kingdom, which are founded upon humility and true love. And that is why in this Christian life, when we advance to spiritual maturity, this is exemplified first and foremost by true love because it is completely antithetical to the value system in Satan's world system, in the cosmos diabolicus. So as long as we are operating on biblical principles, we can understand freedom, appreciate freedom, and have life and happiness because sin is being restrained through the judiciary uh, within a nation and from outside the nation in terms of a hostile takeover. Point number six, sub-point number six under this is that unrestrained carnality is the height of irresponsibility and responsibility is the foundation for freedom. So unrestrained carnality is nothing more than irresponsible behavior. And the more you give rein to irresponsible behavior, the more you will destroy freedom because you have to have a, a citizenry that have a heightened sense of personal accountability and responsibility in order to preserve and maintain freedoms. Now, the Exodus event in the Old Testament is the paradigm for understanding political freedom. Because before the Jews were freed politically from Egypt, they had to go through a spiritual redemption which is exemplified in the entire Passover meal. That is why the Passover comes before the Exodus. But the people 
rejected the provision of God, even though the Exodus generation was primarily made up of believers. They rejected the provision of God. They're constantly fighting against God. They did not submit in humility to the authority of God. And so they had no capacity to appreciate their new freedom, and they constantly wanted to go back to bondage of Egypt and submit to to slavery in Egypt and go back to the good things in Egypt rather than look forward. They couldn't handle freedom. They wanted the security of slavery rather than the uncertainty of freedom. Because in true freedom, you might make the wrong decision and you might have to suffer the consequences. And when you don't want to suffer the negative consequences, then you just want somebody else to take care of you. And that will destroy your life and it destroys the soul of a nation. So no capacity, when there is no capacity for freedom, you will exchange freedom for security and personal responsibility for bondage. You want somebody else to make all the decisions for you and to solve all the problems for you, and you don't want to go forward in in success. The more you limit your ability to fail, your degree of failure and the consequences of failure, the more you will limit the opportunities for success. And we see this today in this country as we want to shift responsibility rather than taking personal account of personal responsibility and placing responsibility on individuals for their bad decisions, what we want to do is shift the blame to someone else, like with these uh, criminals in Colorado. We want to put the blame on their parents. We just can't understand how anything like this could happen because you're operating on a false system. The basic people are basically inherently good, and since kids are born inherently good and they're just so wonderful and they don't have a sin nature, then it must be somebody else's fault. Somebody else did something to them that caused this. It's not their fault, and of course it's society's fault because they made guns available, so we're all to blame, and it's not them, and we just start wringing our hands and pulling out every grief counselor and psychologist and psychiatrist on the news media and interviewing every one of them because we just can't understand or explain human behavior. That's because we've thrown out the Bible. The problem is sin. The problem is that man is inherently evil, and the only solution is the redemption solution at the cross. But at the very core of liberalism is the idea that man is inherently good and that society is basically perfectible. And at that point, you buy into that, you're divorced from reality, and from there on, there's going to be a conflict. And that is why the more our society drifts away from the biblical establishment principles of absolutes, and our society becomes more steeped in moral relativism, and we don't hold everyone, whether they are an athlete, whether they are a uh, business person of some fame, or whether they are a politician, when we do not hold everybody accountable to the same law, then we have slipped into pure moral relativism, and the more society drifts apart in these two directions, believers with absolutes on the one hand, and the unbelievers and carnal believers and moral relativism on the other hand, the more society is polarized, the closer we come to an implosion of the culture, and we see the effects of divine discipline and the complete loss of freedom and tyranny in this country, and we are on the edge and a verge of that. Remember, the greatest concept of love, the greatest love according to the Scripture, punishes the criminal, executes the murderer, and is willing to fight and die for the freedom of the nation. 
Freedom of military through military victory is a consistent principle throughout the Scriptures. Now, I have seven points we'll wrap up with as sort of a conclusion. First of all, total depravity must be restrained in the populace and in the leadership of a nation. Two areas. Total depravity. Every human being is born totally depraved. That does not mean they are as bad as they could be. It means that in the totality of their makeup, every aspect of their being is equally affected by Adam's original sin. That's what total depravity means. Total depravity must be restrained in the populace and in the leadership. This is done through law. Second point, freedom is earned and preserved through moral courage. Freedom is earned and preserved through moral courage. If you do not have the courage to fight for your freedoms, then you do not deserve to have those freedoms. Third, freedoms are based on absolutes, and absolutes ultimately are based on doctrine in the soul. That means that if there's no doctrine in the soul, you lose your understanding of absolutes. Once you lose your understanding of absolutes, it destroys freedom. Remember, Bible doctrine defines reality. God has given us His Word so that we can have a true and accurate perception of reality because rationalism and empiricism are inadequate to ultimately define reality. And when you start operating on pure autonomous rationalism and empiricism, you're going to come up with screwy concepts like liberalism, that man is basically good. And that absolutes are just generated by man on his own, and therefore they are relative. Once you begin to lose absolutes from, this, from doctrine then the loss of freedom is not far away. Fourth point, the loss of absolutes. When the loss of biblical absolutes destroys values and virtue. And remember, true love is virtue dependent. If there's no virtue in the soul, then love is worthless. True love is virtue dependent. And if there's no virtue in the soul, then there's no true love. If there's no true love, you cannot have a functioning society, because that true love, again, as we have seen, is based on humility and grace orientation, and if there's no humility, then everybody's operating on arrogance, and that means they're just in it for themselves, and they don't care about anyone else. So it's all related. When you begin to lose a sense of absolutes, that destroys virtue and values. Point number five. Virtue and values provide capacity for freedom. When you lose virtue and values, freedom is destroyed. Now, when you start moving in the direction of antinomianism, which is lawlessness, what happens in a society is you get away from absolutes, you lose lose your absolutes, and you start moving towards relativism. And the first stage in relativism is going to always be towards licentiousness because now you've thrown off the controls of, of absolutes and you just do whatever you want to do. And we saw that in the 60s and in the 70s. This is lawlessness. 
There's a rejection of absolutes. Everybody just do whatever you want to do and there are no consequences. And as a society drifts more and more towards the chaos and anarchy of lawlessness, there only appears to be one solution. And that is the solution of the strong man, tyranny. And a loss of freedom because now you have to have big government. You have to have a major power that comes in and is going to restore control to that culture from the top down. And that means a loss of freedom for everybody in the culture. Point number six. The only solution to the problem is a spiritual solution. It's not through crusader arrogance going out and trying to whitewash the devil's world through political solutions, uh, marches, uh, all the other things that go along with that. It is through converting people, through the proclamation of the gospel, number one, and then believers advancing to spiritual maturity, number two. So the only solution that lasts is a spiritual solution because the spiritual solution alone provides the capacity for understanding freedom and personal responsibility which are necessary for the foundation of freedom. And finally, we live on the brink of national destruction because we have drifted off course as a nation from our doctrinal roots. We have rejected God. We have rejected Scripture. We have rejected divine viewpoint. We are operating on incredible amounts of arrogance People have, are divorced from reality. They don't understand what the true issues are. And they respond and are manipulated emotionally by the media from one event to another. And very few people stop and think objectively about what the real issues are and what the real problems are. They haven't been prepared for it by the educational system, which has gradually eroded ever since John Dewey started reshaping it in the early part of this century under the uh, various... Uh, uh, doctrines of secular humanism and from that point on we have gradually eroded as a society and seen our strength erode away and now we are just a shell of what we once were and most people don't even realize it but the there is hope there is always hope and that hope is found in the scripture in the word of god with our heads bowed and our eyes closed father we thank you for the opportunity this morning to look at your word to pull together some of these important principles related to, to freedom and love and to see how these have been distorted in our society just to help us think clearly, to see how the principles, the absolutes of Scripture do apply in an everyday sense to what goes on, what we see going on in, in our country. Father, we pray for our nation. We pray for our leaders. We pray especially for the pastors who are teaching the truth, the few that remain in this country that have not caved into legalism and moralism and uh, religiosity. Father, we pray that they would be faithful to your word, that they would be faithful in proclaiming the doctrines of grace, that salvation is by faith alone in Christ alone. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning who is uncertain of their eternal destiny that is not sure that if they were to die today, that they would go directly into your presence. We pray that you would make the issue clear that salvation is based solely on the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. The Scripture states it succinctly, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. All that is necessary is for you to say 
in the privacy of your own soul, words formed by thought alone. Father, I accept the free gift of salvation in Jesus Christ, who died as a substitute for my sins. That's all that's necessary. If you believe Jesus died on the cross for your sins, there is no condemnation. Father, we pray that you would help us to think about the things that we have studied this morning. We meditate upon them during the week and help us to understand our society and what's going on, that we may look at events in our lives from the perspective of your word and from the divine viewpoint. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.